0: Hey, this is Norm Stockton, and I bring greetings from California. I am excited to be here at Frequency. Check it out. Welcome to the Frequency podcast, folks. We're glad you joined us. Uh, we are Frequency.fm. And uh, Joe and I have been uh, catching up, doing some recordings here. Uh, we just finished listening to me train wreck the last <laughs> podcast <laughs> episode that we were doing, um, but it's all in good fun. Uh, I'm I'm not aiming to be the most popular person in your world, um, and and that's okay. <laughs> um, the funny thing, Joe is is, uh you know, I, I spent the last week with March break here. For our kids, there was no school for a week. Um, mm-hmm. Just the way it works out. And and uh, we, we watched a lot of movies. Um, my son made me watch Shutter Island. Have you ever seen Shutter Island?
1: No, it sounds familiar, but I couldn't tell you what it is. What is it?
0: It's Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, oh, then
1: you lost me right there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but the funny thing is like the whole movie, it just messes with your mind. And then right at the end, you realized that it was all opposite of what you thought it was going to be. Yeah, it's no, just, spoilers. Gonna, no spoilers. I'm not going to. I'm not going to spoil it, but but yeah, it. it's yeah. been around for a while. Anyways, it's on Netflix. I don't know if it's on American Netflix. It's on Canadian Netflix. And I'm not sure. Uh, it's interesting enough to watch once. I wouldn't watch it again. But yeah, it was it was interesting. But we our well, family just went to see. Um, I can only imagine in theater. Um, you know in the u s it 's readily available in Canada. we had to beg for it um, it wasn 't until they made it to number three in the box office before Cineplex Odeon in Canada said, well, maybe it 's worth watching
1: yeah i 'll tell you what I did a study in college where um this was about fifteen years ago when I was going back in for business and i had to and i studied i did a business plan for a dinner theater like movie dinner cinema thing. And the margins that those guys operate on for movies, is so, and the, the movie theater operators, the, the, is so narrow. They have to pay X number of dollars just to get the movie there. Hmm. And then all, they make almost no money. I think they get maybe 10% of what the movie brings in per ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, all the money they make is based on what they sell when they get there. So yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah. So,
0: That's interesting. Um, yeah, and in, in the Christian what, realm, I mean, Christian movies are historically bad, quote unquote, you know. Um, not high art. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think all of them are, but you know, like I liked ragamuffin, for example, Mm -hmm. well done movie story was honest, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, this was on par in a sense, you know, like, you know, Dennis Quaid did a, a good job. Um, the artists, um, that were represented in the movie for the most part were good. Michael W. Smith, not so much, but the portrayal of Amy Grant was good. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, but if, if you take yourself out of that and look at the storyline, it was well done. So I was impressed. Um, I'd love to talk to the directors, especially post, um, success to talk about, you know, the the lessons learned. Okay. So it costs 4 million to make, you made 60 or 50 something at this point. So what's the next step then, you know, are you going to use that money, step up your game, you know, make more because the problem with these things is bandwagon. All of a sudden, they want to flood the system with all these Christian movies because they made some money. And then if they tank, then, you know, like there's another movie out about the Apostle Paul. You know, And they said it was a good movie, but I haven't really seen a whole lot on it. So, yeah, Yeah. I just don't understand the movie world, especially in the Christian industry.
1: Yeah, I think what they should do now is take that money and then do Left Behind one more time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no. God's not dead. Eleven, because he's oh, still not gracious. dead. And yeah. I, I'm saying that, you know, whimsically, because we know artists that are actually on the God's Not Dead album. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm joking about it. But Joel Vaughn and all these guys, they actually have songs on there. I just have not seen the movies. I I wasn't I wasn't overwhelmed enamored in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And then we don't need to say anything negative about it. But know, go see it for yourself, and then you can judge. Um, but you know, I'm cautious of Christian movies you know, especially, you know, when you're a pastor and you look at things with a theological lens and not all of them, you know, would track with where I would go in scripture. So that can be difficult too, but yeah. Uh,
1: Let me tell you what I've been watching, not Christian. I, uh, there's a thing, I don't know if you guys get it on Netflix in Canada, but it's called Wild Wild Country. And it's a six part documentary about an Indian guru who came to to Oregon rural Oregon in the 80s and set up a commune. Um,
0: I just heard <clears throat> about this. Yes. Well,
1: I grew up here in Oregon when that was all going on and crazy stuff. And it's all true. Great. It's a very well-made documentary. It is, you know, it. it's not for everybody because they don't shy away from stuff, uh, including yeah. the fact that there's a lot of stuff going on there that is pretty gross um but shocking and the fact well, I, that
0: i wanted to act ask you about this because i wanted to know if it was true so you are saying it's true
1: oh yeah hmm. yeah um my uh my in-laws were just in town and we should i only have a couple more minutes left so forgive me but my hmm. in-laws were just in town and they always say why are there so many homeless people in portland and i tell them well it's not because we're advertising it and and their their perspective is if we stop giving stuff to the homeless people they just go away but what happened is is this guru wanted to take over Wasco County, Oregon. And to do so, Mm -hmm. they sent buses out to major metropolitan areas with homeless and they recruited the homeless, brought them in buses, brought them to the commune and had them register as voters in Wasco County with the idea that they would vote the people who led the commune into the county commission so they could take it over. And Ah. what happened is that that didn't work. Um, and they started, they started drugging the homeless people, sedating them so they could keep them under control. They found out, um, and then they decided, well, this isn't working. They kicked all the homeless people out. And so they had, you know, I don't know how many thousand, six thousand 6,000 homeless people that all of a sudden had no place to go. Well, where'd they go? Portland. Wow. Um, yeah. And so that's the reason why the homeless community is so enormous in Portland. And then it's kind of just become that. But that has really absolutely nothing to do with this episode. Zero.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think I looked on the map. It, it's it's east of Portland, right? Where that land was?
1: Yeah. It's a, an area of uh, Oregon that um, real close to where my family originally settled. We had a lot of acres out there. It's a place called Big Muddy Ranch. Um, okay. And uh, actually, it's close to a place, uh, Bake Oven, the Bake Oven Road, which is Interestingly enough, the place where my dad asked for his ashes to be scattered because that's where he grew up was right over there.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so it's real close to uh, kind of where my family is was originally based when they came from Ireland. Wow.
0: It's interesting. I I mean, I know it sounds like we're on a tangent mm-hmm. starting talking about this stuff, but this is what everyone does. Like people watch Netflix. Yeah. People, yeah. when they get home from a busy day, they, you know, people resonate with, with you know, <clears throat> what's on the mm-hmm. tube, you know, as we used to say. Yeah, because that's on my list of things to watch because – one of the elders that I work with, Jeff, was telling me all about this, and I said I have to ask Joe if this is real. Like, how much of it is real? Because one hundred percent. Yeah, because I, you know, I want to get an understanding of stuff that happens. I like history and, and that poisoning, so that's,
1: murder attempts, uh, the 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 largest mass poisoning known in the United States, the largest um, illegal uh, um, or... bugging, and uh, you know, wow. it's just amazing what happened. Uh, you, yeah, but don't watch it when the kids yeah. are around because yeah. there's just some really gross stuff and mm. anyway
0: yeah well the as we transition out of this conversation um you know we've been talking talking <laughs> to bass players um getting back into the the music yeah. realm, which we've been delving in a little bit um yeah uh we we got to talk to Norm Stockton in the last episode this time we're talking to Grant Norsworthy um who he's more than a bass player let's be honest like he he, oh, yeah. he does yeah, absolutely. pretty much anything Um, great accent, (laughs) you know, if you watch his YouTube channel, uh, and he's putting out amazing quality content produced well, spoken well, a lot of wisdom. Um, yeah, I, I appreciate pretty much everything that he shared recently. Um, so much so that I actually liked his page and want to see it in my feed, which I'm very picky these days on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, he's just, um, a great guy to talk to. Um, Yeah, I don't know if you want to sort of prep us for the interview before we dive in, Joe.
1: Well, no, I think you've done a great job. Um, Dan actually helped coordinate the interview with Grant and uh, just had a, a really a wonderful conversation with him about his worship ministry in terms of coming in and working with worship teams and helping them really focus on what's important with worship. And we don't really get too much into worship, which is, you know, there's, there's a lot of podcasts that address that and um, and we'll be involved in one here very soon. Uh, But um, it's just, he's coming in with a um, as a a very talented, solid rhythm section player and helping people understand technically the foundation uh, musically Mm-hmm. And then also the heart and the focus behind it as being Christ-centered. Yeah. And so we spend a lot of time talking about that, uh, as well as him explaining what um, fair dinkum means. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what fair dinkum means, you will soon find out in the interview.
0: That's a perfect segue, Joe. Let's dive right into the inter- interview that Joe did with Grant Norsworthy.
1: So we're chatting with Grant Norsworthy today, and to get started, I thought that we might if I could ask you to just walk us through a little bit of your journey as a Christian artist. I know that you've been active more than 20 years, but um, maybe just high-level walk us through that.
2: Yeah, well, uh, gosh. You know, I, I'm a person who was raised in the church, Mum and dad taking me off to a, a little Baptist church on the eastern suburbs of Melbourne for all my life, and I was taught classical piano as a kid and sang in choirs and was forced into brass bands playing cornet and e-flat tenor (laughs) horn and then high school playing trumpet and music was kind of cool but kind of dorky as well and then when i finished high school i picked up a bass guitar Uh and immediately i was in three bands you play bass guitar sure and i was a borrowed bass guitar yeah and so i had a little bit of uh, musical nous about me i guess because of my background but uh yeah and i've I found that if, if I was released from having to play the notated page, there was this wonderful joy, you know, listening to other people's playing and, and copying that and then coming up with my own parts and being more creative. Yeah. And I've been, been in bands ever since, ever since I was about 19, which is pretty late to start an instrument. But I decided pretty quickly to want to have a go at being a professional. Um, and that led to me, as a follower of Jesus still at that point in my life, um, because I was in Australia where a very low proportion of people would, would consider themselves part of the Christian faith or, or attend Christian church meetings. Yeah. And, uh, there's a very small population anyway, that's very spread out in Australia. That's right. Yeah. So you can't really find an audience that's going to support, um, uh, feeding yourself and paying your rent, right. you know? Yeah. So, I uh, started playing in cover bands, playing in bars and clubs around Melbourne and, and rural Victoria. And, uh, Enjoyed that. It was an incredible learning experience. And, um, and then in 1998, uh, Paul Coleman and Phil Gordian, two close buddies of mine for many years, who we, we were all three of us uh, followers of Jesus, and we were all playing the bars and clubs. Yeah. And if you are passionate about music and want to do it professionally, and you live on the eastern side of Melbourne, uh, and you're a follower of Jesus, That's about seven people, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So we knew each other. Paul's a great songwriter, great singer, great guitarist. Phil's a great drummer, singer. I'm playing bass. We decided to form a band, and uh, Paul had a bit of a solo following and a solo record out, Paul Coleman. So we called it Paul Coleman Trio, PC3 for sure, and very quickly became the biggest thing in Christian music in, in Australia. Yeah which just means both Christian stations were playing our songs, you know. <laughs> yeah. Very, very small market. But it looks good on a press release. Yes, it you know? yeah. You know, uh, hit singles and awards and, you know, sold out tours, 250 people, you know. It counts, <laughs> man. It counts. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Uh, so we managed to sign a recording contract with Essential Records, and uh, we relocated to Nashville, Tennessee, which we all wanted to do. Yeah. We, uh, you know, like if you live on the edge of the world like we did in Australia, and you feel like you've got something good that might even have a positive influence beyond the, the shores of Australia, then you know you have to leave home. That's just part of life. Yeah. You know, you have to do it. So, uh, gosh, well, all three of us were married. I'd been married for about six weeks. Wow. But in February 2002, we relocated to Nashville, Tennessee, got picked up by a tour bus, and we were opening for third day on their come together tour of that year. Yeah. And, uh, put out a record called new map in the world that had a few hit singles on it and did a lot of touring and playing, playing some, you know, main stages of festivals, not headlining, but, uh, getting there. And it was a really fun band. It was an exciting time, but, uh, rationally, Paul and Phil and I, we were having some struggles. Mm. It's really tough being in a band, yeah. Joe. It's, t- it's tough. You're mixing business, art, cre- being creative and, and a lot of travel, a lot of time together, and you know we were, we were all suffering some sort of level of culture shock as well. Yeah. Anyway, we put out a record called One, which was a reference to John seventeen twenty one. Anyone who knows the Bible might know that uh, Jesus prays a prayer where his followers would be one, just as he and, and God are one. And so the themes of the record were all about unity and forgiveness and and togetherness. And then we broke up. And the irony escaped (laughs) us at the
1: time. (laughs) Jeez.
2: Yeah. But but my wife, Brooke, and I, even with the trio breaking up and Phil going home and Paul heading out as a solo artist, we decided to stay in Nashville, seemed to be the best place in the world to be if you were a follower of Jesus and wanted to make music that hopefully was honoring to God. And so I launched out to try and be a freelance bassist. And I managed to string that together for a few years, including three really important years for me as the bassist with Sonic Flood. Yeah. Uh, some people might remember Sonic Flood. Uh, they had a lot of hits, especially in the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, they were huge, Yeah. huge joke yeah. before I joined, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but nevertheless, I really enjoyed my three years with Sonic Flood, a lot more touring, more recording. And, uh, but in 2008, very, very early 2008, when I, uh, finished with sonic flood um i decided to to recraft myself as a speaker a public speaker and uh a lot of people thought of me as being a musician and i tried to say things like oh, look i'm actually a speaker who can sing songs i'm not a singer who talks too much and Fair uh, yeah that that seemed to work and, I, and i've been doing that now for 10 years a speaker and a musician so let me
1: ask, because this question came up as you were describing, you, uh, as you picking up the guitar when you graduated from high school. And this I don't have this written down, but I just I wanted to ask the question in terms of listening to other bass players and being influenced by other people. Are there any particular people that uh, off the top of your head that you think of were particularly influential in your style as it developed?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I. My my very conservative Baptist parents would, would not let me to listen to mainstream music, but I did anyway because I was old enough to be deceitful, you know? Yes, yeah. Uh, and so I would have to say John Deacon from Queen and Paul McCartney from the Beatles mm-hmm. and even Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath <laughs> and whoever played bass on those first two Boston records, which I believe was Tom Schultz, not the guy who's on the record <laughs> sleeve. Right. But yeah, a lot of that sort of music. And then also started finding myself really influenced by lesser-known people, uh, like Phil Lynott from Thin Lizzy, who was always a, a bass pick player, right? You know, right. and I fa- but I found myself loving not virtuosic bass playing, but loving what bass could do to help a song connect. Yeah. Uh, I I found myself loving music that wasn't necessarily drawing attention to the bass, but the bass just really shifted a lot of air. You know. Yeah. And melodic bass and bass that really locked in with the drums and played parts you know I really enjoyed that but then when I was playing in cover bands around Melbourne uh, I was in one band in particular called Supernova and we played a lot of Tool and Rage Against the Machine and Pearl Jam and yeah. some Led Zeppelin and it was like wow this this was another whole thing for me which I also really enjoyed
1: to D Murray who played with Elton John for a number of years, was one of my favorite bass players because he enhanced the song without drawing attention to his playing. It was mm. unique. Now, you said that these days now you're working more as a speaker. Um, if I if I recall correctly, you, you speak under the umbrella of a ministry, uh, and I think I have the name right, More Than Music Mentor. Is that correct?
2: Well, that's very close to correct. Oh, okay. I mean, I just present myself as Grant. No, that's totally fine, oh, okay. Joe. I present myself as just Grant Norsworthy and my little slogan for America at least is Grant Norsworthy, speaker, musician, Australian, you know, <laughs> it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be funny yeah. and I'm going to milk this accent for all I can yeah. as a speaker, it really helps me out in this country. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, But I, one of the things I was doing even since 2008 was I'd work with local church music teams, the instrumentalists, the singers and the, and the technicians as well yeah. and, and try and help them. Well, initially it was because they were my backing band a lot of the times I'd work with the volunteers, you know, and uh, I found myself with this ability to coach them to be better than they were previously, um, Years and years of playing bass in bands and listening to the overall sound, perhaps more than the lead singer, perhaps more than the drummer, yeah. you know, perhaps more than the lead guitarist, you know, just going, yes, I'm listening to the whole sound and seeing how it affects people when we do this, yeah. or when we do that. It just really helped me think about the church setting and what we're trying to do in music in the church. And so uh, part of what I was doing is this coaching. And that's what I found the church wanted from me the most, you know, uh. If you present yourself to a church and say, look, I'm a, I'm a preacher slash teacher slash public speaker, they're like, well, we've got that covered. You know, we've got, we've got a guy who's getting paid to do that. Yeah. But if you say, would you like to have a Grammy-nominated, double award-winning musician with these runs on the board as a musician work with your team, that's the easiest, quote-unquote, sell. Yeah. You yeah. know? <laughs> and I'm passionate about that, and I'm really good at it. So uh, I formalized that uh, not, too long, not too long ago as more than music mentor. Uh, because I don't want to just focus on what are we playing and how we're playing it. What are we singing? How do we mix that? Yeah, You've got you got to flow from more than just the notes uh, to get to where I think we want to go, especially in a church setting. You've got to focus on why we have music first and let the what and the how flow out of the why. So, yeah, there's always been this sort of what I think of as being the, the heart side of things that flows from there, the heart side, the the big reasons why we sing, and move from there to the what and the how, which I call the art,
1: right? Not the craft mm. or the specific, the technical aspects of it, but what you're really presenting,
2: right? And well, well, there's there's plenty of that yeah. when I when I do these on-site uh, training workshops for church musicians, singers, and technicians. Um, we have to do a little bit of the why first, and then we get to the what and the how. Yeah. We have to first agree why we're having music. What's the purpose? What are we trying to achieve? Because there's, there's often a lot of mixed agendas, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I'm singing in the church team because I got a degree in music, and I may as, may as well use it somewhere, you know. Yeah. Or I'm going to pretend to myself that I'm in Hillsong and playing in front of twenty thousand people. This is so great. <laughs> or, you know, like, uh, well, they asked me to do it, so I might as well. No one else is going to. Well, we have music because we always have for two thousand years. I guess we just continue. You know, there's a lot of reasons yeah. why, and I try to help us focus on the big reasons why.
1: Well, w- when I started playing music in church, it was uh, 2003. I was uh, early 30s at that point, and they just said, "Well, you got a guitar, you can sing. Why don't you do some some songs for us?" Well, I didn't. I didn't know what. And I'm going to put this in quotes. Nobody can see this. What worship music was. And Mm. people said, oh, you're a worship leader. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. I'm just the guy who goes Mm. up and I help lead this group of people, both the musicians and the congregation. And I was not good at it. But it seems like I had to learn what other people meant by their definition of worship because where I had grown up, worship was more than music. I didn't connect those two. I'm interested, you know, because my background is a little different. What's your definition of worship and how the music fits in with that?
2: Oh, thanks for asking. Um, This is a subject I'm really passionate about, but I'm an Australian bass player. You know, I've got to keep it simple. Yeah, yeah. So I found it really helpful to go back and look at how the word worship was used originally in our English language. Because if you notice, like, words change over time. As an example, the word awesome is so overused and misused in 2018 that it's lost almost all of its deep profound meaning right. you know it used to be a word that we used to describe something that filled us with awe yeah and awe means i am totally and utterly overwhelmed and amazed and there's a component of fear yeah. when the, when i am filled with awe when something is awesome but you know in 2018 i was at a restaurant recently and i the, the waiter said would you like a drink and i said just water please and he said awesome, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And he's not wrong. That's how the word awesome can yeah. be used in 2018. The meaning has changed. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was fascinating for me because I, I found myself in this music industry and I was playing the Paul common trio that was primarily doing songs to, for people to listen to. Right. And then I found myself in a band, Sonic flood, where all the songs were, you could say, vertical in nature. They were prayers. They were singing praises to God. And the words were on the screen, and we we're asking people to sing them. And this sonic flood band was known as being a, being a worship band, singing worship songs, giving people a worship experience. And our songs were on worship charts. Yeah. And our interviews were with Worship Magazine and things like that. Yeah. You know? And so I just found myself thinking about this, worship. I hear this word used a lot. What, what does it mean? So that sent me scurrying back to, well, what's the original meaning of the word? And I found that the word worship wasn't said as worship only 300 years ago. It was said worth-ship. Mm. Worth-ship. So to worth-ship something or to worship something is to ascribe value to it. Yeah. You know, so I might go to Walmart and spend 63 cents on a bottle of water. I've shown the worth of that bottle of water to the point of 63 cents. Right. In an airport, I might pay five bucks for a bottle of it, <laughs> bottle of water. Yeah. You know, in an airport. <laughs> I have done. Um, you know, so – when we say, well, what's worship? We have to think, well, it's just to show the value of something. Yeah. Now, I believe that God tells us, and you can see this in the Ten Commandments, especially the first two. But if you stand back from all of Scripture, all of the Bible, I think the big message is worship me. Show the worth of me above everything. Yeah. Above everything. So to worship God is simply to show the worth of God. Uh, But if we start swimming more deeply into that statement, we begin to realize that my whole life uh, forfeited, my whole life laid down. And I don't mean my physical life necessarily, but I think about Romans 12.1 that says, Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and let that be your spiritual, reasonable, intelligent act of worship. So I begin to say, Oh, God asked me to worship him on his terms not my terms, not my culture's terms. So I find it really useful to think of a church gathering is an expression of worship. Singing songs at, that praise God, that are prayers to God, that remind each other of truths about God, this is an important expression of worship. Yeah. But the true worship of God has to continue after the songs have faded and we leave the auditorium. And I decided while I was in Sonic Flood to stop using the word worship as an ineffective adjective. You know, worship band, worship leader, worship experience, worship Spotify channel. You know, it it's never, the, the word is never used in scripture as an adjective. My parents' generation used the word worship primarily as a noun. Worship starts at 10 and 7 right. p.m. You know, right. like it's an event, a thing. That's right, yeah. Um, but you'll find yeah. it in scripture only as a verb, to show the worth of dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And it's actually used in both ways, you know, because we actually see Moses showing the worth of his father-in-law by bowing down to him. So it's possible to show the worth of other things. We just need to realize that we need to worship God on his terms. And it seems to me that this is an all or nothing transaction. Offer your whole self. Yeah. Everything. Everything. All your time, all your energy, all your money. is a You know, the way I expend those things is an opportunity to worship God or be an idolater. Right. And I'm, I'm beginning to see the way I raise my children as a way of worshiping God. The way I keep my marriage vow as a way of worshiping God. And I'm passionate about going to the Sunday gathering or any other time as a way of worshiping God, of taking communion, of giving to the offering plate, of singing songs of praise. These are all important, perhaps more important than we realize, ways of worshiping God. But I think the gathering and the music only comes into clarity It only really comes into focus when it's woven into a life surrendered in worship. You know, and I, I find yeah. a lot of people say things like, and I even said it in interviews, you know, like, gosh, it was, you know, early 2000s. And I'd be asked in interviews, what's worship? Just like you've asked me. And I yeah. say, well, worship is a lifestyle. And a yeah. lot of people yeah. say that. But then I found myself reading Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, and it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ, and and Jesus saying you have to carry your own cross, and Jesus saying if you hold on to your lifestyle, you're going to lose it. Give away your lifestyle. That's how you find it. And uh, I thought, whoa, worship's not a lifestyle. Yoga's a lifestyle. Yeah, you know, excellent. Yeah, being being vegan is a lifestyle. But what's worship? Well, worship more accurately is a living death style. True mm. life. The life of Christ fills me. The life of who God is can fill me, and it only takes up residence in me as I am letting go, surrendering more completely my lifestyle. Yeah, that's really hard to do. Yeah, well, it's impossible <laughs> to do as a human, you know. But yeah, but, it's, you know this. But this is not about trying harder. This whole journey of being a worshipper or being a follower of Jesus, in my mind, is is it it does involve Effort, absolutely. But paradoxically, it's actually about giving up, surrendering. Yeah. Just going, all right, I can't do it. And uh, I'm trying to embrace both sides of that paradox.
1: I know that there's sometimes, as a worship leader, I'll sing a song that has very lyrics that are very absolute. I give everything to you, or, you know, th- things like that. And I sing those and I go, that's not true. Because even if I want to, I don't, I'm not capable. And I, I struggle with that a little bit, but I think what I hear, hear from you is it's okay to acknowledge the fact that we don't really have the capacity to do it to the extent that we should, or because we're human and we're full of sin. And that's Mm. our very nature gets in our way. Paul, you know, with his thorn and I I do what I don't want to do and and all those things. Um, I think it's good to, to give ourselves permission to to say i'm going to do my best and i'm going to work to attain this and still recognize that if i don't get there that doesn't mean that i've failed
2: right right and i sing a lot a lot of those songs as well and encourage other people to sing them with me uh, one of my favorite older hymns is i surrender all
1: yes yeah
2: and i just find it helpful to remind myself and sometimes i'll even do it over the mic during the intro yeah you know hey, we're going to sing this song, I Surrender All. And I don't know where you're at, but I can tell you, I've got to confess, it's not true.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm still holding on to elements of my selfish human flesh, yeah. you know, to use to use a, a biblical term. My desire to be my own small G God. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm going to sing this song, I Surrender All, anyway, in the hope that it helps drag me closer to a reality of that. Excellent.
1: Yeah, I love that.
2: Yeah, but it's good to recognize that it's not true yet absolutely
1: yeah i appreciate your your insight on that i think that's helpful even if you're not a worship leader you know because it's really the worship leader is just one person on a team um you mentioned that you also what you work with like the sound people mm, yeah. um i'm curious what's what's your engagement like with the people on the other side of the board how you work yeah. with them and help them understand what they're giving to that experience
2: yeah well if i'm if i'm working with a team then I, I'm very, very intentional about involving especially the audio technician but also a projectionist if there's a lighting person, which a lot, a lot more churches yeah. seem to be having as well. Uh, and I, I'm i actually not one for a light show usually in a church setting, but sometimes it it can work. But anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, there's this very intentional and public in the sense of I want all the singers and the instrumentalists to to see me reaching out to especially the audio technician as the most important member of the band. Yeah. The only objective is in this whole organization is this person behind the mixing console. And, uh, you know, I see it often, you know, where, you know, the singers and the instrumentals on the platform and they, and they pray together before their rehearsal or after the rehearsal, or before the service and the sound person sitting back there rejected, Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> left out of it. It's like, well, we just need to be a lot more intentional about that. Yeah. And so it's a lot of interactions that I, 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 want, I want the instrumentalists and singers on the platform to hear. Hey, Joe, if it's you, you know, how's it sounding to you? Is there anything we need to change to make it better? We can't really tell up here, but maybe you can tell. Yeah, I need the, the electric guitar amp down. Absolutely. Guitar amp down. Don't turn it up later. You know, <laughs> yes. like this is not about your tone, dude. Yeah. This is about us crafting a sound that helps engage your congregation. And Joe's the only one who can tell. Yeah. So a lot of that sort of talk, including people in the, in the meetings, in the prayers, and uh, just making sure that sound te- technician knows there's, there's a metaphoric, more metaphorical red carpet rolled out saying, we, we invite you to come and critique us and make suggestions. That's a big part of it. And I often find sound people just going, even the professionals, because a, a lot of them are volunteers, but sometimes there's professional people yeah. behind the mixing console, because we in the church, we know that this can be a problem. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather have a professional audio tech than a professional guitarist, singer. Yeah. I really would in a church setting. I, I could, if I had to choose between one and the other, it'd be the audio tech who's the pro. I 100% um, agree with you on that. Yeah. 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 but. I go, Thank you so much for. I, I have the audio technicians will say to me, I have felt totally disregarded. Yeah. By the people on the platform, and most of those people who say yes, I'll sit myself behind a mixing console, they're generally not very forceful people. You know, they're not very. Excuse me, you need me to break in here. I'll mm-hmm. wait. They'll wait till they're invited. So uh, I make sure that the invitation is crystal clear.
1: It's just one of the probably the most thankless job in in that kind of setting because nobody really pays attention to them unless something is wrong. And then everybody Mm. turns and looks, Yeah, you know, so they get none of the credit and they get all of the blame. And, um, yeah, I try to be good by my, uh, audio folks, but I also know that I'm not as good as I, as I should be with them. Mm -hmm. Um, it's definitely a a growing edge for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know, that said, I still want to make sure that the audio engineer is included in this conversation about, why we have music and what we're actually trying to achieve yeah you know, i've got a three-year-old son casper and i've got a photograph of him jumping up and down on brook and my bed and he's got a huge smile on his face and his arms are thrown up and he's, it's it's an action shot you know he's poised in midair yeah in this photograph, and i show it to the technicians and the singers and the instrumentalists and go this is a pretty engaging photograph isn't it oh yeah they'll say this is really cool and i say well understand that we are trying to paint a picture for our congregation m- with notes, with sound, yeah. with music, with words. And I want you to think that the little boy, Casper, that represents the lyrics and the melody of our song. This is what we're asking people to sing with. This is the most engaging thing about this photograph. This melody and the lyric is the most engaging thing about the songs we're, we're presenting. And, but the little boy has to have a mattress to jump up and down on. That's the kick drum and the bass guitar, two halves of one thing. Get that bass guitar and the kick drum locked, low, full, rich, shifting some air. And then everything else, keyboards, harmony, vocals, acoustic guitar, electric guitar, saxophone, bagpipes, whatever you've got, all those things, just understand they're just pillows and blankets and little boy bounces without you. You're not that important. So get out of the way. You know, no. Get out of the way and don't do anything that gets in front of the little boy bouncing on the bed. Yeah and if audio engineers, singers and instrumentalists are all on the same page with that then we we can move ahead.
1: I love that analogy. What a fantastic picture. And um, I think it speaks to people in a way that they they can receive without it's very practical. I mean it's just a very practical thing and I and you could yeah. you could share that with a non-musician and they would get it as well. So I love that. I love that illustration. Thank you for sharing yeah. that.
2: And that's why I struggle, Joe, with this idea of being a worship leader. Mm. And you know, it's, we use that beautiful, powerful, original word "worship" show the worth of God. And we and we bring it down to this quite small part of our week. You know? Yes. Yeah. And so I'll ask a team, "All right, we're going to talk about why we have music. Why?" And they'll say, "Because we want to worship God, and we want the congregation to worship God." And I'll say, "I agree with you. I know what you mean. How do you measure that?" Silence. Crickets. Br-br-br-br- you know, yeah. it's like, okay, so your culture has taught you that you're a worship leader and you've got to somehow make that group of people worship God. I'm going to let that bag of rocks fall off your shoulders. You are responsible for congregational singing. It's one of the ways we worship God. It's an important way of worshiping God, but it's not confined to just this act of singing. Yeah. So let's focus on this. Let's get this group of people singing praises to God, singing prayers to God and singing truths about God. Let's let's make sure they are singing. And as I travel around, Joe, I see a lot of people on the platform confused about what they're really trying to do. Yeah. I see a lot of people in congregation confused about what they're being asked to do. Am I here to listen to a cover band? Or am I here to sing? I don't know. I'm gonna fold my arms. Yes, you know? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So we, we need to make it absolutely clear what are we shooting for? And we've got to shoot for something that we can measure. Because we've got to, we we want it to be worshipful absolutely when we're singing these songs. But we had to leave it to God to measure how truly worshipful it was. You know what I mean? That's right. Only he gets to decide. We don't have an app so on our people... phones that measures like, the effectiveness
1: of worship. Right.
2: <laughs> that's right. And if you think you've got an app that measures dBs on your phone, you're wrong. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> uh, so that's on. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, to me, it was absolutely freeing. It's not my job to usher people into the throne room. It's not my job to help people, or even the worst one to me, it's not my job to make God show up. (laughs) You know? Mm. These are unreasonable expectations for someone who's struggling to play their guitar and sing, you know? That's right, yeah. So free yourself. Understanding that offering yourself as a living sacrifice is the way God asks us to worship him in every moment of every day. Understand that this music stuff is an important component of that offering yourself as a living sacrifice, but let's focus on getting this group of people singing. Get them singing, and uh, let's let God take care of the rest. Yeah, excellent,
1: you know? excellent words.
2: Absolutely freeing for me. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know how I am supposed to make God show up. I'm not I don't know how I'm supposed to make these people in front of me worship God it's just too much weight. It's going to crush me, yeah. but I can have them sing songs in the hope that it's worshipful. And I believe it's worshipful that I'll leave it to God to ultimately measure that.
1: I appreciate your heart. And as a worship leader, huh. and I, I use that term now, and now I'm like, I never liked the term, but so let's just honor the fact that that's the, yeah. what our culture calls it. But I, uh, uh, mm. in my role leading congregational singing,
2: as one of the ways we worship God. Yes,
1: thank you. Yeah, <laughs> we got to come up with a snappy, shorter phrase for that. But I some, sometimes we can isolate ourselves, and it's and it's so good for me to hear these words from you. And I know that the people listening are receiving that in the same way. As people w- are listening and, and decide they would like to engage with you more, whether it's to come to your church or otherwise, what's the best way for folks to do that?
2: Well, there's GrantNorsworthy.com. I'll have to. Sp- switch on my fake American accent for some of this dot sure. Y.com. <laughs> that's horrible, isn't it? I'll, I'll provide but, a uh, link
1: in the, in the post for folks. Yes.
2: Great. Grant But within that site, there is more than music mentor.com. And you'll find a whole bunch of free video uh, resources there. You'll see videos. There's like, I am going to show my drummer that one, you know, oh, I'm going to show the singers that one. And there's a bunch of articles as well. Um a lot of really good stuff I think you'll find and they're totally free right now. You know, so get to the website sure. and uh, use those. Um but I love to do on-site training. You know, there's the there's the online training that's freely available, but I'd love to come to a church and listen to your band, meet your people, hang out for a weekend and help you craft a sound that's gonna be more effective at engaging the congregation. You know, uh, that's what I love to do. And don't think it's just a big church thing. We work out ways of making it affo- affordable to anyone. And you know, I, I'd have to say too that, that I, I have got a thing at my site that I call Remote Coach, which is uh, upload a video of your band playing. Oh, let me have a listen to it, and I'll then we'll have a couple of conference calls and talk through a bunch of stuff. And that's that's effective to a point, but but I'd rather be there in person. There's a More than All
1: right, MoreThanMusicMentor.com. I'll provide the links for for folks. Grant Norrsworthy. worthy. Um,
2: so got- yeah. <laughs> See, if I say Grant norsworthy, like a lot of pe- American people don't know what I'm saying. We're simple folk. Well, and it's it's tough too, because it's really the abuse of the letter R. R that uh, differentiates the Australian accent from the American one. Yeah, so I have to switch it on for those letters. Otherwise, if I, I'll go N-O-R-S-W-O-R, and it sounds like I don't know how to spell my name. n o a. <laughs> well i'm going to
1: ask you one more question, and there's a bunch of questions yeah. i didn't ask, so maybe we'll have to ca- have you come back and we can chat some more but I like to ask folks guilty pleasure what's something that you enjoy partaking in wh- whether it's watching listening, etc that might be a little embarrassing
2: <laughs> all right well i'd like to think of myself even at my age uh you know i've been around for quite a while, and I can it as very, very important to. To be open to new styles of music and 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 be at least aware of what the quote unquote kids right. are listening to. Yeah. You know, I listen to a lot of pop radio and I genuinely enjoy it. It's not just part of my job, guilty pleasure. I did a workout this morning, and on my headphones was Judas Priest, "Nice Painkiller."
1: All right, not but not Turbo Lover.
2: No i don't mind that song but you know you know this stuff yeah they
1: killed it uh, yeah they, they overplayed turbo lover just it's gone but
2: uh yeah no of course we're same generation yes. i'm sure so synth, synth guitars that was a problem no but but not uh, a good a good chunk of like 80s era metal yeah i love it excellent
1: yeah. well i appreciate your uh your your willingness to share that bit about you and of course you've lost the respect of everybody listening so excellent <laughs> excellent work <laughs> well, tough luck.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Joe, so much for for that interview. Uh, man, I could listen to to him mm-hmm. all day. You know the the wisdom that comes from him. Um, I have to also say, uh, on our social feed, we've shared some of his infographics. He's been really good at articulating with humor and sarcasm, but reality yes. of of where we need to look when it comes to picking keys for music and worship and liturgy for stylization or embellishment or not. Um, He's, yeah, everything that he's pumping out is, is solid, is biblical. There's a lot of wisdom there. So um, yeah, it was great to be able to hear from him.
1: I'm glad you appreciated it. And I hope uh, the audience did as well. And uh, just a shout out to Grant, keep up the good work. Um, People Mm -hmm. really need to hear what you're doing and uh, definitely check out the links on um, on the website, uh, so you can get over.
0: Yeah, I believe it's um, more than dot com. I think is this website. I don't know why I remember that, but I remembered it off the top of my off. Of, well, that's good. Head, that, so. <laughs> and I'm yeah, terrible.
1: Because you, um, <laughs> you should have heard that last episode. <laughs> oh,
0: yes.
1: Anyway, I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna find out. I'm totally uh, wrong. It doesn't matter, folks, go
1: to our, go to the post for this episode. We will have the links to grant stuff, jump over there, engage with him. He's a great guy. And, uh, by the way, folks, we appreciate you. We appreciate you for listening. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, we want to hear from you. So if you like what we're doing, let us know. If you don't stop listening.
2: No, no, we don't know. We don't care.
1: (laughs) Just, just jump in a lake. We'll just, we'll get on with our life and and you get on with yours. (laughs) (laughs)
0: all right connect with us at frequency.fm take care everyone
2: Well, I'm just trying to keep it fair dinkum, you know, trying to keep it fair Uh, All
1: right. Yeah, I I was going to ask what that means. So fair dinkum, what does that mean and where did that come from? Now, I I know a little bit, but I I want you to explain that to us.
2: Okay. Well, you know, um, the Australian version of the English language uh, has a bunch of different things in it that that don't belong to the American version of English. But even things like mate and g'day, they're actually British terms. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Just Australians do them better, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there is this little two-word term, fair dinkum. I'm saying F-A-I-R-D-I-N-K-U-M, two words, fair dinkum. Every Australian knows what that means, and it's only from our version of English. I think some, some Kiwis say it as well. And it means real, authentic, also uh, valuable, of high quality, honest, legitimate. It's a really helpful term. Yeah. Uh, and I think it actually shows that Australians don't want the fluff, they don't want the fake, they don't want the razzmatazz, they want what's real. Yeah. And uh, I love the term because I feel proud of that coming from Australia because I, I want what's real. Yeah. And I think we all do. We all do. I'm not saying there's nothing fake in Australia, but I, I do like to think that we prioritize things that are authentic and high quality and real, perhaps more than our American brothers and sisters. My research is not definitive, but I believe it came from one of our Australian gold rushes oh, okay. where there were a lot of Chinese uh, miners working alongside mainly British descent miners. Yeah, And they were sometimes fool's gold and real gold. And they had to di- differentiate between the two. And the Chinese had a term that sounded to the uh, British ear like fair income. So a Chinese miner would say something in Chinese that apparently – has no perfect match, but British people heard it as fair income, and so they started using the term as well. This is fair income gold. That's fool's gold. That's fake gold. But this is the fair income, and uh, yeah, that's probably from the you know, the eighteen hundreds gold rushes in Victoria or New New South Wales, probably.
1: I love that. I love understanding where words came from, and it's a great term. And I wish that um, Outback Steakhouse would stop it.
2: Just yeah. Hey, <laughs> good good American food. Outback Steakhouse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.